Hi, this is Mimi and welcome to the Lovely Becoming podcast. I'm so glad you all are here and listening. Today's guest is the lovely Fatima Jibanji Shakir. She is a social worker um, who just moved from New York to Illinois. And I love Fatima. We relate on so many things in this way that, um, I don't know, it's like nice to be able to connect with people on things that are hard and things that are really beautiful. And so I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And thank you for having me. For those of you who haven't known what Mimi and my journey looks like, we actually met at the BIPOC conference this past summer and just have really connected. And I love collaborating with Mimi. So it's exciting to be on the podcast today. Yay. Um, so as I ask everyone, tell us about yourself, even though I always like introduce <laughs> a little bit, um, but what do you do? What do you love? Yeah. So I am an eating disorder and body image therapist. I really specialize and love working with people who identify as BIPOC. Um, I identify as South Asian and Muslim. So I feel like there's a lot of like cultural and religious nuances that come up in people with those identities. So I really love thinking about intersectional issues in eating disorder recovery. So things like race, ethnicity, religion, co-occurrence of different psychiatric conditions. It really fascinates me and I'm excited to be here talking with you about co-occurrence today. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. I love that you mentioned this meeting at the BIPOC conference too, because I think that's really central to our work. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we connected like the moment we were in space together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even though we had never met before. Yeah. We were kind of, um, I felt like we were having our own little conversation a little bit yeah. in the panel. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so you have a special interest in the co-occurrence of eating disorders and borderline personality disorder, which is really interesting because we talked a little bit, if you've been listening, um, about quiet BPD on the podcast last episode. And so this is shifting a little bit to more typical presentations, um, but we'll get into that too. What led to this interest in the co-occurrence? Yeah, so I think part of it comes from the fact that studies have shown that about 50% of people who meet criteria for borderline personality disorder also meet criteria for an eating disorder. So what that tells us is that there is a high rate of co-occurrence, but in a lot of my past experiences and in observing clients um, receiving care, most therapists and most treatment centers are well-versed in one or the other and not necessarily in both. And so I've seen that do a huge disservice to clients because they're often getting bounced around between different types of care since people specialize in different things. And then I think the second piece is thinking about borderline personality disorder through kind of a cultural lens, right? As someone who's really interested in the idea of how our identities shape us. Um, I often find that BPD as a diagnosis is really rooted in individualism and the idea that we should be able to self-regulate when there are a lot of cultures out there that value co-regulation and the idea of kind of basing your self-worth on your relationships, right? And how other people interact with you, how they rely on you and how you rely on them. And so I think that's really made me kind of question this idea of how do we diagnose it, but then also how are we treating it and then how are we treating it when there's co-occurring conditions that are that are happening for people 
Ooh, I love that. And it's really sparking some thought for me. Um, The first thing that comes to mind is that when I was a little bit early in my understanding and connection in the field of eating disorders, I would see a lot of the feedback for treatment centers being that it's not um, Mm trauma-informed and that they're so focused on the eating disorder that they forget about and sometimes end up hurting the trauma aspect. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that there's not a lot of conversation about the BPD aspect. And that stat is really fascinating because we don't think often about BPD in the context of eating disorder treatment. It's very Mm -hmm. one, one modeled of like the primary thing is eating disorder. Um, But what happens when there's this whole other piece going on that's really tied to connection and that overlaps with different treatment mechanisms and modalities where even if you are positively affecting change in the eating disorder, you might be negatively impacting the attachment trauma there. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges is there's always this question of like the chicken or the egg when it comes to treatment, right? Of like, what do we treat first? And I think that comes from a lens of providers not always being trained and feeling well-equipped to work with that co-occurrence. And so I've seen situations in which programs that work with people who have BPD will say, okay, we can't work with you until your eating disorder is more healed, right? Until you're further along in that recovery process. And so then they'll refer to an eating disorder provider or treatment center. And then sometimes eating disorder treatment centers and providers will say, well, it seems like this is more about dysregulation. So if we get you into the right BPD treatment, which is often seen as DBT, it's going to lead to those improvements also in your eating disorder, right? And so clients can kind of get bounced back and forth between different kinds of treatment, different providers, which ends up delaying the care. And I think actually reinforces that message of like, there's nobody here to help me, right? That feeling of like loneliness, of isolation that we often see as being one of the symptoms of of BPD. Oh, that is so good and really transitions well into this other part. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned it. Uh, But with this cultural aspect, I'm thinking when you mentioned the individualistic care in our society, um, in American culture and treatment centers, the treatment, I guess, that I think of when I think of BPD is this connection, this radical corrective relationship setting, um, looking at attachment trauma and like really being with people. And that's kind of central to the disorder. And so I'm curious about this idea that in an individualistic culture, we would recommend something that's stringent and rigid, like firm boundaries with clients or something like traditional DBT, which is interesting that it's supposed to be specifically for people with, you know, uh, dysregulation, but at the same time, it kind of cuts off the emotion and is like, don't feel that too strongly. Don't express that in a way that is not normative and trying to like make your relationships almost fit into the box of what's quote unquote, okay to reach out to people or when it's quote unquote, okay to use your body to express how you're feeling. And so I wonder if we can really draw a lot of wisdom from a collectivistic culture model where we treat it in a way that understands that relationships are fundamental and we can't just cut them off. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because I was talking to Candace Alaska today. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Candace, um, she goes by understanding BPD on 
Instagram, um, really, really helpful account. And something that Candace was sharing today was this idea of abundance versus scarcity, right? And in collectivistic cultures, connection, relationships are often seen as being in abundance because the idea is that we fuel off of our collectiveness, right? Off of us all being in relation to one another um, versus in individualistic cultures, there's more this mindset of people's time and energy is scarce um, and therefore it's limited to us, right? Which kind of reinforces this idea of, well, if people are limited to me, then I might, one, end up feeling more alone, but two, I think that's a lot of where the standardized models for BPD treatment like DBT come in, right? And I think, you know, DBT is a really helpful tool because it does help with a lot of those emotion regulation skills. But again, it's rooted in that idea that other people are scarce to me, and therefore I have to learn how to do this on my own. Wow, that is fascinating and incredible. And Candice is also an incredible resource for this work. So definitely check it out. Um, what are some challenges you find that people with both eating disorders and BPD face, whether in trying to find treatment or being a part of these uh, treatment modalities that are often very separated into one eating disorder or the other BPD? Yeah, so I think the chicken or the egg, which we talked about is one. I think the second one is the way that client and provider relationships are utilized in, in treatment, right? Where oftentimes, you know, it can be really difficult for someone who struggles with BPD to form a trusting relationship with another provider. And when that person might be recommended higher levels of care or alternative levels of care and maybe feel resistant to pursuing those because it's not with the, the provider that they now have a secure attachment to, there can be this utilization of the therapeutic relationship in a way that I think causes an attachment rupture, right? So oftentimes that might look like putting somebody on a treatment contract saying like, okay, you have to meet these goals. Otherwise we can't work together and you need to go to this other place, whether that's a higher level of care, a different program, whatever it may be, or, you know, utilizing the relationship in a way that says like, hey, if you trust me, you need to trust that I'm sharing this in your best interest and that this recommendation is really for you. And I can understand how from a provider lens, right, it might sound like it makes sense to use that relational dynamic. But I think what we're not accounting for is the power dynamics. As providers, as people who are often highly trained, there is an inherent power dynamic that exists within a client-therapist relationship. And so I think it can make the other person feel like, well, if I don't do what you want me to do and what you're recommending, that you're going to leave me, which again, reinforces that attachment rupture, which is what we're often trying to heal. And people might think about that from, okay, well, I'm doing it from the eating disorder lens to ensure that you're getting the right level of care for your eating disorder. But then that ends up hurting the BPD more and oftentimes making it worse. Ah, absolutely. That power dynamic in therapeutic relationships is really critical. Um, and in my work, I'm a big fan of 
transparency of therapeutic processes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's sometimes there's this idea or this underlying message that says I am well and I hold healing and Mm -hmm. you are ill and you don't understand what you need. Yes. And that is a huge ouch. And I think, you know, that uh, the idea of like safety and security is I think one of the other challenges, because oftentimes for people who do go to higher level of care programs um, or any outpatient programs, there can be a sense of like safety and security that that program provides. And oftentimes when people are getting discharged, we're trying to connect them to outpatient resources that can provide that ongoing care. But that might fall through it because insurance changes, providers leave places, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think one of the things that we often see, especially in higher levels of care programs, are people coming back, right? Coming back for care. And that's often interpreted as like, oh, this person is um, engaging in the eating disorder so that they can like come back to our program. But when we kind of zoom out and think about it, that person might feel like they have a secure attachment to the program because that the program might have offered safety and security. And even if the providers might change that, the system might feel really familiar to the client. And so they might want to come back at a time where they're really hurting and in, in need of that healing. I think it's important that we be curious and really reframe the idea of why are people returning for care? Why are they, they reaching out to us? Mm, Yes. And recreating those abilities to connect with people and feel safe in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, Programs offer community, a lot of group therapy. Yes. Depathologizing those bids for connection is really important. Um, And I like how you talk about being curious about what is it that is making them want to come back here. And even that rephrasing instead of like, why are they here again? And they're sick. It's like, what are they needing? And how are they really smart for getting those needs met? Mm-hmm. And what can we do to, to support getting those needs met? Is it them returning to the program? Is it us helping them find an alternative program that might better meet the ongoing needs they have so that we're not just meeting it in short burst for the client, right? But really doing something that is long-term and sustainable for them. Absolutely. And it's really an interesting setup with higher levels of care. Something that we've talked about a little bit is this idea that you get really disconnected from that provider. You lose access to someone that you see every Mm -hmm. single day, maybe in residential or even a PHP program. You're told you need to trust this person with your trauma. If you want to heal, you have to be vulnerable. And with BPD, it's like you finally might feel safe and like someone can care for you. And then once you are discharged, whether suddenly by insurance or they decide that your problems are quote unquote too much, whether that's relayed in those words or it's an underlying message, and then you're cut off from that relationship. You know, you can't go see that provider anymore. Um, You can't have that wraparound support anymore. It's usually a really big shift. I've heard a lot of people say that you know, after they leave residential, it's like all of a sudden there's all these triggers in the world that they don't know how to manage because treatment was so insulated, which Mm -hmm. can feel safe, but it also doesn't help you prepare for when you're kind of dropped out of treatment. 
Yeah, and I think bouncing off of that, Mimi, you know, for programs that really adhere to strict dialectical behavioral therapy protocols, they often require that the client terminates with all providers outside of their program, right? So they might say, okay, well, you need to have a strict DBT adherent therapist, which means now you can't see your outside therapist who might utilize DBT in their approach, but isn't necessarily a strict DBT provider, right? And so they'll say, if you're going to try this treatment modality, you have to be all in. And so when when programs have requirements like that, they're actually fostering an attachment rupture because now this person has to terminate with someone that they might feel really comfortable with, that they might trust, who might be that attachment, that secure attachment base for them. And I think this can actually reinforce the eating disorder because in that time of uncertainty, instability, newness of these other therapeutic relationships, that person might be like, okay, well, I need to find my secure base to attach to, right? To feel that sense of familiarity and safety. And so that might mean the eating disorder behaviors resurface, that they get worse. Um, And so in doing that, you might be quote unquote, helping with the BPD, but at the same time, potentially making the eating disorder worse. Mm -hmm. Which really comes back to the topic of this conversation, which is why you need to treat the two together Mm -hmm. and why you need to consider how one treatment might impact another. Yeah. Um, And I think one way, one thing to consider in that is the idea of like caregiver or support-based dialectical behavioral therapy. I think there might, and, and don't quote me on this, but I think that there's a group in Canada that tried researching this where, you know, you have someone that you consider a secure attachment figure participate in programming with you so that they're also learning the skills that you're learning so that you can participate in co-regulation, which I think also kind of touches on what you were saying earlier of this idea of like relationships in treatment and in therapy can change with providers, right? So there's that question of, well, how do I apply this outside of the safety of the therapeutic framework? And I think if we are able to involve supports more and more for people who are struggling, then we're helping foster that secure attachment to a supportive person or a caregiver who's not part of the kind of therapeutic treatment team, which may help facilitate more long-term recovery. Mm, Having the connection outside of treatment so you don't have to necessarily go back to treatment to find the connection that you are, that we all need. Um, you know, we've mentioned this, um, secure base a little bit, so I wanted to bring it up. So sometimes, uh, BPD is seen through the lens of attachment theory and attachment trauma, a concept that's central to attachment theory is having a secure base, usually in the form of a primary caregiver. So what that means is that person might be attached to a mom or a dad um, securely, and that person's presence makes them feel safe enough that they can explore the outside world and begin to develop their own interests and identities. 
in the studies, usually you'll see a child who is able to be with their mom and then they're able to play with toys while the mom is in the room um, and go explore other things because they know their mom is there. They know that they're a safe person who's there for them, that secure base. What happens when you don't have a secure base or safe person like this growing up? How does that impact your relationships and and what does safety seeking look like later on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think when you have an insecure attachment to others, so what you were describing when you don't have that secure base, that person or the people who make you feel safe, you might turn to other things to offer that sense of safety. And so food can be one of these things, right? Especially for people who are struggling with the co-occurrence of eating disorders and BPD. So for example, if someone is engaging in binging, that binging might be happening because it might feel like food is there for me when I need it and when I don't need it. Perhaps I have enough financial access to keep buying food when I am in need of it. And a lot of this can also play into where you live. For example, if you're living in a heavily populated city like New York City, where there's access to food at all hours of the day, there's always a bodega or a pizza place or something that's open, it can feel like, okay, it is truly always there for me when I need it. Similarly, someone could feel that sense of attachment to eating disorder behaviors like purging or restricting or like body checking, for example, like whenever I'm feeling unsafe, I can engage in this behavior to ground me. So I think that's one of the things that we can kind of see happen and why that co-occurrence could happen. And I think the other thing I wanted to touch on is um, the idea of behaviors increasing when somebody leaves a higher level of care or discharges from the providers. I think oftentimes what clinicians observe is that after discharge from a treatment center or from a provider, a client might be engaging in increased behavior use. Um, And this is often interpreted as the person is like, is looking for attention, right? And I think another way of looking at it is that the person is returning to their secure base in a moment of uncertainty, fear, and transition right? Because they just lost that relationship with you, with the treatment center, whatever it may be. And naturally they want to feel safe. They want to feel secure. So they might turn back to that, to that behavior, those behaviors. And in cases like that, I think as clinicians, we really need to hold on to the hope that the client will feel that safety and that security with the eating disorder behaviors, and then return to exploring the idea of recovery and providers when they're able to, right? And realize slowly over time that like recovery is going to be there and that slowly recovery will become that new secure base for the the client. So I think that's just something that I always think about and is important to keep in mind. Definitely. It's understanding what's going on instead of punishing it out of people or saying it's bad. It's so important. And something that I've kind of been thinking through is this idea that familiarity can feel a lot like safety. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what that looks like in practically is that we want to return to something that we know. And maybe that means that the eating disorder, the dysregulation that we might name in our systems from therapists and providers 
might be what we're used to. And so when things are calm and still and not chaotic, it's like, I don't like that feeling. Like, I don't know that feeling. It's not familiar. And so why would I want to stay in that place? And, and so we have to start teaching ourselves both viscerally and through Mm co-regulation that safety is something that becomes familiar in a way that we're able to go towards it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that really comes into the attachment lens too, where it's like, and not in a bad way, again, really depathologizing this, like, I want connection that feels like we're talking all the time. Like we are close, even if it feels like maybe from an outside perspective, like, why would you want relationships that are up and down? It's like, I need that sense of, um, stimulation and like Mm -hmm. to feel something familiar, um, because you know what you're getting into a little bit. It feels like, okay, this is what my system is used to. And so co-regulation safety treatment might feel really dangerous for a while. And maybe that's why we don't want to do like a DBT protocol because it's like, that doesn't feel familiar. I don't know what this is. Like, I can't trust you yet because we don't have the experience and the trust of that security to know it's going to be okay. Um, So that felt important too. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely spot on. And I think that's where like bridge sessions, especially can be helpful, right? So if you have a client who is going to be participating in a different program, new program, potentially working with a new provider, um, it can be really helpful for them to feel like there's a sense of safety and security in taking on this new endeavor. And so if the provider is a secure base for that client, it can be helpful if that provider is engaged in the communication process with the new providers or programs that the client is looking at um, to really help increase that sense of security that this endeavor is safe and is in my best interest. Definitely. I love that a lot. Um, And something I've been thinking about through this conversation too, well, one, I wanted to provide a little bit of psycho ed, if you will, on DBT. So the four tenets and help me out here if I forget interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, uh, mindfulness and distress tolerance. I think you got it. Amazing. I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) So as you can see, you know, I think both of us could probably say we use some of the worksheets and tenets in our work Mm -hmm. and they can be really helpful. Like those tenets, um, emotion regulation, like helping you not be consumed by big feelings or interpersonal effectiveness, like learning how to have relationships. So it's interesting to me that these tenets, um, and I think some of the core DBT principles and ideas like dialectics, holding two things at once are really foundational. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens is that in practice, they become so rigid or like DBT is the only thing I use. And if that's what you use, then great for you. But how does that hinder people or pathologize people, even if it's not intended to, but putting them into this, like, you need to rely on yourself and your body when people aren't ready. And I think that a lot of times people aren't ready and that shouldn't be a bad thing or like, uh, you need to prepare yourself more. So yeah, just kind of wanted to bring that lens in of what we're talking about when we talk about like 
DBT being really rigid. Sometimes they have rules about when you can call a provider. But interestingly, and I'm curious to hear what you think of this, what about boundaries for providers? Because I think the connection piece is really important for people with BPD is having someone who says like, you're not too much. Your needs for connection are good and you're taking care of yourself in the best way you know how. But if you have a provider who's like, I want you to feel safe and connected to me and like, I'm not going anywhere, but also we're humans who are like, Ooh, I can't talk to you like every single day. Like I have my own other clients. I have to cut off work at certain times, but how do you balance that desire to affirm people that they're not, their bids curve connection aren't bad or too much, but I also can't meet your needs and we all can't in this individualistic society. Yeah. I think one way of doing that is really ensuring that clients have access to spaces and places that can really support facilitation of mutual relationships, right? So, you know, maybe helping them enroll in support groups or therapy groups. It doesn't have to be specifically focused on the BPD, but a place for them to really get that connection, right? Especially from peers. And I think the second thing that comes to mind is sharing our own humanness and our own needs with clients, right? Of like, of sharing like, hey, I hear that you're wanting connection and that you're wanting support and I wanna provide that to you. And in order for me to best do that for you, I do have to sign off at this time so that I can get enough rest to show up as the best version of myself so I can provide that support to you, right? I think a lot of times when we're rigid in in our boundaries and just say, this is the boundary, it kind of keeps the client out, right? And I think that's where it sends that message of like your bid for connection is wrong or is bad because we're kind of shutting them out without insight into the the why and the how, which I think is also really helpful for when you think about things like interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, right? Understanding the why and the how can help clients with those aspects of, of DBT as well. So that's what comes to mind for me. I love that. It kind of reminds me of like the feminist approach to therapy where it's collaborative and you're giving insight to the client and allowing them to have a perspective and a conversation. It's not just a one-sided like, yeah, no, you can't talk to me outside. It's like, okay, that's really hard. And I can relate to that. Like, this is kind of a strange relationship where you might not have as much access to me. And that's kind of odd. What can we do about that? Maybe it's that we have two sessions a week, or maybe it's that we decide, okay, I'm going to be able to email you when I'm needing you, but I might not respond, but that doesn't mean I'm not listening. And you still got that room to process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think another thing for clinicians to keep in mind and, and really for anybody is how much Western societies, especially foster this idea of needing to have like one person to to be your everything, right? And I read a lot of Esther Perel's work on relationships and marriage and monogamy. And it's really interesting because Esther talks about how historically 
marriages and relationships weren't focused on like the two partners meeting every single need for one another. It was really normalized to get your sexual needs met outside of the marriage or to have your emotional needs met outside of the marriage and to have other people that you did shared activities with. And in modern day relationships, especially when we think about monogamous relationships and two-person relationships, there's often a lot of pressure on the relationship to be, okay, so you're going to be the person that loves me, that is sexually intimate with me. Also, we financially provide for one another. We have children together. Um, We also have shared hobbies. We're also friends, right? There's like a lot of pressure that's put on one person, not one person, but like on each person in a relationship, right? And I know that these theories really focus on two person and oftentimes heterosexual um, relationships. I just want to acknowledge that. But I think when we pull out and think about that from the BPD lens of how oftentimes we'll see that clients are really fixated on one or a couple of relationships on their lives and wanting a lot of support from you know, a, a few key people, I, I don't think it's people's fault. I think that in a lot of ways, our society sets people up to believe that they should just be able to get everything that they need from one to four to five people in their lives when we need things even from like the person at the coffee shop downstairs, right? There's needs that they meet and really we rely on our collective society to, to help us with that. And so I always just try to remember that when I'm working with people. I love that so much. It reminds me, I had a conversation with um, a good friend. His name's Thomas and he's a social worker as well. <laughs> I love the social workers. And it just really clicked for me. He was kind of like, we make romantic relationships into, like you said, this end all be all. And mm-hmm. the way he kind of talked about it was like, Okay, but also when, you know, you have the friend who's getting married and you're like, okay, I'm going to take second role because the partner is automatically like most important. Even if you have this deep connection with your friend, it's like, no, they have a partner now. Mm -hmm. Um, Or even with kids, they're like, well, my kid has to come first all the time. And we're just expected to be like, yeah, that's just the way things are. Even if I feel like the relationship shifted without any conversation or I didn't have a say in, in anything. Like, it's weird to be like, your friend has a say in you getting married or you having kids, but like those relationships are really impacted and shift. And, and what about for people who are asexual people who don't want to get married or have kids, Exactly. but yet they're left with like, you don't experience especially in um, religion, sometimes this highest form of intimacy and love that like Mm -hmm. reflects the divine. And it's like, oh my gosh, well, then you have to get married and you have to feed into this idea that your partner is everything and you have a wedding. You don't have a big celebration for friends, Mm -hmm. but like, why we need other people in our lives. I think that's why sometimes fights happen or like divorces, this idea that you should just stick with it forever. What if we're not all meant for that kind of relationship and that's okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I love this conversation. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I want to pivot actually um, 
to, I have my usual questions I ask everyone, but, um, so Fatima and I have been working on a project for a while and I thought it could be interesting if we just throw out maybe some topics or ideas that came from this conversation that maybe you could find in our next iteration, whether it's a webinar or a workshop that kind of get people interested in learning more. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So what Mimi and I are hoping to talk about is really diagnosing and treating the co-occurrence of eating disorders and borderline personality disorder. We want clinicians to feel more equipped to work with clients who have these co-occurrences and to promote healing. Um, that's kind of like the general gist that we're going for in this training. And I think some of those subtopics that we might hit on are what are some of the challenges? We talked a little bit about it today, but we would definitely expand on it in the training and really thinking about what are alternative ways of working with clients who are struggling with this co-occurrence to promote that healing. So we'll definitely take into account of like security, right? And what offers security in that healing process when we're helping someone to really heal from the eating disorder, but also from, from the BPD. I don't know if you want to add anything, Mimi. Yeah. Um, something that I was just thinking about is, is a FP the same as a secure base? Tune in for more. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in for more. We will keep you all posted as we have more developments in this training. Yes. So wrapping up a little bit, but I like to ask everyone, what are your favorite foods? Ooh, okay. So I'm a huge fan of desserts. So cookies and brownies any day. If I'm thinking about like meals, I love Yemeni cuisine and specifically fasa and malawa, which is the Yemeni bread that they give you with the dish is that makes me happy on any day. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. Food is so amazing. <laughs> it's nourishment for the soul, nourishment for the body. Yes. <laughs> and the question I ask everybody, how are you becoming? One way I'm becoming is through this training that you and I are, are developing together. I think you've been teaching me so much. And so really thinking about this co-occurrence is one thing. Um, and then, you know, this is a, a bit of a different tangent, but I've been focusing a lot on sex therapy and relationship training because I realized that that's coming up a lot with clients, whether they struggle with eating disorders, borderline personality disorder, both intimacy, sex, relationships is, is a huge topic that comes up for so many people. And so I'm personally just working to learn more and to get myself better trained so that I can support the people that I work with. I love this so much. That's so beautiful. And I'm going to link where people can find you in the show notes. I'm also like, oh my God, Fatima, you have a TikTok? <laughs> um, I have like one post on TikTok. <laughs> I love it. It's slow. It's a slow pro process, but I'm trying. <laughs> well, maybe you'll be TikTok famous from this podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for coming on. Thank you for having me. And thank you for just being a wonderful gem of a human. I, for anyone who's worked with Mimi or hasn't, Mimi is truly 
amazing to collaborate with. I always feel like, like, have you ever heard or read the Instagram posts that are like things that feel like a hug? I feel like when I talk to you, I feel like I'm being hugged, even though we're always talking virtually. (laughs) Oh my God. You're amazing. You have such a beautiful spirit and voice and just like, I'm really so grateful we are connected. Me too. And thank you to everyone who joined us in listening today. Hopefully we'll see you when we have a more formalized version of our training. Can't wait. Ah, leave a review and I'll see y'all maybe in a couple of months when I record again. <laughs> <laughs>